For those of you remaining in here, you can see in your bulletin that our passage this morning is actually passages, uh, two pretty well-known passages. The first is Matthew one twenty-one, and the second, John one twenty-nine. And I will read both of those. So if you would turn in your copy of God's Word there. give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. First, from Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then John 1, 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this day. And we've heard it read in a language that we understand. But now we ask that you would grant to us spiritual understanding, that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things that you, by your Spirit, would teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake, that you would make us more like Jesus. I pray, O God, for those gathered here this morning, I pray that you would minister unto their hearts. I pray that this would be a word of encouragement, yes, even a word of salvation, if it be your will. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant, that you would protect me from error, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've seen it, you know that there is much to laugh about in the classic holiday movie, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, I watch it every year, and uh, admittedly, I probably watch it more than three times, but I watch it a lot, okay? And when prompted, I'm likely to quote from it more than, actually, I probably should. Uh, It's probably not considered natural uh, how much I can quote from that movie. But as much as I enjoy the movie, as much as I enjoy a good laugh, there is a part of it that I just cannot tolerate. A part of it I can't stand. It happens at the end of the film. When the family gathers around the front of the home to see what Clark Griswold thinks is the Christmas star up in the sky right before Aunt Bethany starts to sing the national anthem, if you remember that. But he looks up and he declares this. He says, that's all that matters tonight, not bonuses or gifts or turkeys or trees. See, kids, Christmas means something different to everybody. Now I know what it means to me. Christmas means something different to everybody. Now I know what it means to me. This is typical Hollywood-driven relativism, and it's meant to make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. We're supposed to just nod along with Clark and maybe even sing with Stevie Wonder. That's what Christmas means to me my love. But in this short scene, we're actually being called 
We're being called to join the ranks and dutifully conclude along with him as good ones. Christmas means something different to everybody. Well, on the most fundamental level, that's a lie. That is a lie, and I refuse to believe it. For all that Hollywood and modern philosophy strive to make Christmas to be, for all the Charlie Browns, another movie I like to watch over and over again, who continue to cry out in despair, remember what he cries out? Can someone tell me what Christmas is all about? For all those who do that, as God's children, each and every one of us are called to be Linus in that movie. He answers in response. If you remember, he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. He goes up on stage. He arranges everything. He goes to the microphone and he says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. And he continues. Amen, Linus. Amen, Linus. Christmas is all about Jesus. Christmas is all about Jesus. And if Christmas teaches us nothing else, it should teach us that, in fact, everything is all about Jesus. Everything. So then standing on this side of Christmas Day, the day after we've all huddled or most of us have huddled around Christmas trees and we've exchanged gifts with loved ones, I now want to draw your attention to God's word and call you to huddle once again. But this time not around a tree, but to huddle around the cross of Calvary and join me in rejoicing in the greatest gift, not only given to us, but given for us. The greatest answer to our greatest need, wrapped, wrapped up in swaddling cloths, lied in a humble manger, born in obscurity, but given the greatest name ever given. And all this so we might experience a great salvation through a most unexpected Savior. So to help us gather around the cross together, I've chosen these two passages. Matthew 1.21 and John 1.29 to call us there. It's a call to listen, a call to rejoice. You take them together, they guide us on a journey that leads to the magnificent grace we've received through faith in Jesus Christ. On markers, on our journey, think about taking a journey, you might want to mark your way. I have a couple of those to help us understand better the blessings that belong to us. I want to talk about two truths that are revealed in the scriptures before us. So the first truth is that Jesus has indeed been given the greatest name. If you're taking notes, as I know many of you like to do, that's our first of only two points this morning. The greatest name. Matthew, in his account here, records for us some interesting details about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. You can look around the context of the passage we read from Matthew. You can look there. You'll see that that Joseph has learned that Mary is pregnant. And he has not yet come together with her in that way. So we're told in Matthew 119 that, quote, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. That's quite a noble notion, is it not? 
For Joseph could have taken this whole thing in another direction. He could have raised all sort of raucous. But instead, instead he decides to take the high road. He decides to take the high road. And it's on that high road, we're told in verse 20, that the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Look there. It says, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now that's a dream. That's a dream. The angel of the Lord appears. Now I know some personally know some Muslim converts to Christianity in West Africa who have come to faith in part through dreams they've had. Though I don't believe that this is a normative way in which God works for each and every one of us, he certainly does that according to his will. The dreams vary if you read these accounts. And of course, as you read more and more accounts, you see that not all people tell the whole truth about the dreams. But of course, what happens to Joseph here because it's recorded for us in the inerrant scriptures, is most certainly true. And if you doubt even that, if you're skeptical of God working through dreams, I think that his response to this dream also certifies its authenticity. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called, he called his name Jesus. You see, Joseph obeyed. He readily obeyed, even to the point of yielding one of his greatest privileges as a parent. He yielded naming the child. But you see, he knew, I would argue he believed, that this child did not belong to him. This child belonged to his father in heaven. And this child had already been given a name. Verse 21 tells us that his name, he should be called Jesus. So Joseph does not hesitate. He calls his name Jesus. Now the Greek name of Jesus, Jesus, is actually, a little language lesson here, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew name, Yahashua or as we say in English, Joshua. The name Joshua literally means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh, or in your older versions of the English, Jehovah is the covenant name for God. The name he revealed to Moses, which you can find throughout your Bible, wherever you see the name Lord, all in capital letters. That's when this covenant name of God is being used. So you see this baby has been given this name, Jesus, which literally means the Lord is salvation. Surely Joseph would have known the meaning of this name, even if he hadn't yet fully grasped the significance of giving it to Mary's son. Furthermore, Joshua was indeed a common name, much like it is today, but as we know, There's nothing common about this name when it is given to this baby in light of who he is. For this is not an ordinary baby. This baby is Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am, he says later. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. 
and his name is truly great. The Apostle Paul makes this point in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. If you would turn over there with me, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes this very point to the Philippian church. After speaking of the humility of Jesus, that Jesus had left the glories of heaven, that he had emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He says, being born in the likeness of men, and he goes on becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's just talked about the humiliation of Jesus. He then continues by pointing to the exaltation of Jesus. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, we'll read verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name Jesus is the name that is above every name. It's the greatest name, the name of the greatest king, the one to whom all honor and glory is due and will be due. These verses remind me of how C.S. Lewis describes Christmas in his book, Mere Christianity. He describes it this way. I'll paraphrase it for you. He says, Christmas is the story of how the rightful king has landed in enemy-occupied territory and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I like that language. That's good language. The story of how the rightful king landed in enemy-occupied territory And he's calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What's this great campaign of sabotage? Well, it begins certainly by rejecting all the lies about Christmas. I think it includes embracing the truth of Jesus' virgin birth to that humble couple in humble Bethlehem. Embracing the miracle. It certainly includes accepting not only the truth of Jesus' birth, but also all of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his continuing heavenly reign, and his future second coming in glory. But it must also include the truth told to Joseph by the angel of the Lord, that he's given that name because... He's the savior of his people. He's the savior of his people. I believe we must embrace it and includes what the apostles Peter and John make abundantly clear in Acts 4.12. You might remember, you may have this verse memorized. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. So you see, to take part in what Lewis called the great campaign of sabotage, we must not wait to bow our knee to Jesus, the name above all names, the greatest name. We must bow our knee 
to Jesus right here and right now, every moment of every day. And the only way that we will ever do that is if we come to understand the second truth, our second marker revealed in the passages before us. And that truth is that Jesus was born to meet our greatest need. This is that second and final point, our greatest or the greatest need. What I like about Lewis's quote is he points out something we are prone to forget, is that we live right now in enemy-occupied territory. This is where sin is rampant all around us. Here we are under the influence of the ruler of this world, Satan, and his forces of evil. But listen, enemy-occupied territory is not just something out there. It's not just something outside of us. It's also something in here. It's also something in us. We're all sinners, not just because we sin, but because we are by nature sinners. We're born in sin. And because our hearts and our minds and our wills are entangled in sin, sin proceeds from us in our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. Though we be made new, we still carry with us, what does Paul call it? The flesh, right? There's still a war waging within us, Paul reminds us in his letters. This has been true since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, and it will continue until Jesus returns to put a full and final end to sin on the last day. But until then, we have to deal with the power and the pervasiveness of sin, both out there in the world all around us and in here inside of us. The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to inability to please God. It ultimately results in separation from God. I'm glad there's good news. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. We need this Jesus born in Bethlehem, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. In his book, Unfinished Business, author Charles Sell reminds us of this reality about our need for Jesus. He says, and I quote, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness of our sins. So God sent us a savior. God sent us Jesus. The angel told Matthew, he will save his people from their sins. So that they would no longer belong to enemy territory, but they would belong unto Jesus. They would belong unto God. And though they would still battle against sin and the flesh and the devil, they would be conquerors. They would be victorious through Christ. Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. And he would do so as John the baptizer declares over in John 1.29. He calls us to set our eyes on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, while the world was walking in darkness, 
while the people of Israel were waiting for an earthly deliverer, one who would throw off the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire, while the religious leaders of the day were all too busy whitewashing their tombs, heaven came down. Heaven came down to earth in a most unexpected way. The unexpected Savior was born into this world to do what God had foreshadowed in the sacrificial system for centuries before, that Jesus would come to be both the great high priest and the offering. He would offer himself as the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the only sacrifice of atonement that removes both the guilt of sin and the punishment for sin. He would shed the blood that washes us and makes us clean. That he himself would be the offering that delivers us from the power of sin. That transfers us into the kingdom of light. That seals our adoption as God's children. And that fuels our growth in grace and knowledge. He was given for both our justification and our sanctification. He's our heavenly provision And he will stay with us by his spirit until the day we die and we experience the fullness of his promise. He would never leave us nor forsake us, but that he will raise us up with him on the last day. This is what Jesus was born to do. He was born to die. He was born to save his people, to save us from our sins. He came to perfectly and fully fulfill the will of his father who sent him. He came to meet our greatest need. If you don't know that already, you must know that. Your greatest need is your need for Jesus. That is your greatest need. A story is told that in the early 1900s, the Times of London sent out a general inquiry, a call for writers to compose an essay that answers one question. And this was the question that they asked. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? You're probably thinking, how many words? How many words do I put? Well, noted theologian, author, apologist of the day, G.K. Chesterton, he took up the call and he answered the inquiry and he sent his response to the London Times. Here's what he said. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton realized what all of us must come to realize. In the words of Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And until we realize just how far we've strayed, until we realize just how great our need is, we will never truly know just how great a name Jesus has been given. 
So as we gather around the cross this morning, and and hopefully as we continue to gather around the cross for many more mornings to come, not just on Sundays, but really every day as we remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done, let us cast aside, let us just throw off any Jesus that we might seek to form and fashion according to our own wants and our own desires. Sure, we might well watch with disgust as Clark Griswold boldly declares that Christmas means something different to everybody. But at the end, remind yourselves that those words are given for entertainment, right? Those are just words from a famous Hollywood actor being paid to play a part in return for some money to line his pockets to make your pastor laugh for the rest of the movie. But remember that he's just pushing an agenda, that the great enemy, Satan, longs for all of us to embrace. Our enemy wants us to believe that his name is great and that he can meet our greatest need. That's been his tactic from the very beginning, even in the garden. Did God really say? Go ahead. It's always been his tactic. It always has been and it always will be. It's a lie. That honor, that honor belongs solely to King Jesus. He has the greatest name and only he can meet our greatest need. He's the one, to, he, he's the one who came to save his people from their sins. All that the father gives to him will come to him and he will most certainly never cast them out. So I have to appeal to you Have you come to know your greatest need? Do you know that your greatest need is your need for Jesus? Do you know that your greatest need is your need for Jesus to deliver you from your sins? If not, then today you're invited to bow your knee to Jesus, to confess your sins to him and receive his free offer of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus, the word tells us. And I tell you now, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will indeed be saved. And listen, if you still resist, if you still resist, then I pray that the words of the apostles will remain with you as they did with me many years ago and and stuck to me. God used it among many other things to bring saving conviction. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among which men can be saved. No other name but Jesus. God changed my heart and allowed me to cease from my striving and my serving. I believe he can do the same for you. To not serve the wrong master. To serve the world. To not seek for other things to bring me pleasure. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Maybe like most of us here, you, you know that. Like, yeah, he was my greatest need and he still is my greatest need. I need Jesus. Rejoice. Rejoice and sing. He found you. He saved you. He changed you. He is changing you. 
He, by his spirit, is making you more and more into his image. He's working in you for good, for good. Take comfort in that. I want to close by reading a couple of verses from a hymn written a long time ago by John Mason Neal. Some of you may recognize it. It's titled, Good Christian Men Rejoice. Listen to these words. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He has opened heaven's door and we are blessed forevermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save. Calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting hall. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. Amen and amen. If you would grab your bulletins.